As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, guys. Thank you for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, and with me today, not Tom Warville, who is off this week for a recharge and a software update. I am joined, however, by Michael Cox. Uh, Michael, the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, my birthday in two days. Thank you very much for remembering, Ali. <laughs> Not in any way what I meant, but there we go. Um, so as someone born in and around Christmas, do you have a, a slightly uh, strange relationship with Christmas itself? A lot of people complain that, you know, if you're interested in, in gifts and presents, that maybe you don't get full value for your presents, given the proximity of your birthday to Jesus's? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the main thing is I was very excited that for the first time ever, I was going to have a birthday lunch, not surrounded in a restaurant by uh, people having their Christmas parties. <laughs> but of course, I won't be going to a pub or a restaurant now. So that's been ruined. Uh, uh, but we've got some Zoom Christmas drinks with The Athletic. So that's a great birthday treat. Oh, gutted to be missing that, I tell you. Um, <laughs> Coxie, what have you been writing about this week, by the way, on, on The Athletic site? Something on Son and Mane is coming out ahead of Liverpool against Tottenham tomorrow. And there's something planned on Jamie Vardy as well and how he's a more of an all-round player than people often give him credit for. Exciting. Uh, theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is where you can read all of Michael's stuff. And the, the offer at the moment is Get One, Gift One, a Christmas-themed offer from The Athletic. If you buy a subscription today or this week then you'll also get one free to give as a gift to a loved one michael why don't we get into today's zonal marking podcast and why don't you introduce our special guest another debut being made on the zm pod yeah it's about time we tackled wsl and there was a big game of the weekend between manchester city and arsenal which city won very late on in stoppage time with a caroline weir goal and uh yeah our new or relatively new WSL writer Katie White is here to uh, yeah discuss the article she wrote about that game and Arsenal a bit more widely and indeed the WSL even more widely than that. Katie, thank you very much for joining us on today's pod. Well, thank you for having me on. How is life 
at The Athletic. You joined about two months ago, around the time that the WSL season started. How are you finding uh, being The Athletic's go-to women's football writer? I'm really enjoying it. It's very different to The Telegraph with lots of kind of different demands and there are certain things that you do have to do here that you don't have to do there and you don't have to do there but you do have to do here and very very big change but I'm really really enjoying it and everybody's very very friendly so yeah hopefully I'll still feel that way in a year's time. Yeah, that's all you can ask for really. Um, We're going to tackle the league as a whole and the title race as well later on in the podcast but as Michael mentioned the biggest game of the weekend that's just been and it was one of the biggest games in the WSL this season was Manchester City against Arsenal and well we had some late drama a a much more exciting game than the Manchester City men's game against Manchester United it's fair to say Uh, City winning it in stoppage time with a brilliant goal uh, from Caroline Weir before we get into the game itself and break it down. Katie, an extraordinary story emerged over the weekend about Arsenal's Jennifer Beattie. Yeah, um, she spoke to um, Football Focus and a few other media outlets about her um, battle with breast cancer and how she had um, continued to play despite her diagnosis and how uh, she had won a Scotland uh, cap since her diagnosis and scored even while playing with breast cancer. So there are so many really significant footballing milestones and achievements within that time period but also from a personal perspective she was talking about how she'd had to take the club doctor to appointments because with Covid she couldn't necessarily go and hug her family and go to them for support and and what a kind of disorientating experience it is anyway to have to she was saying ask the doctor am I still going to be alive in however many years time am I going to die from this but to go through that experience with COVID and with the restrictions and the limits on how you can see your family and who you can turn to for that physical support um, was a really, really difficult and troubling experience for her. But thankfully, sounds like it could have been far, far worse and she's well on the way to recovery now. And for her to come out and share that and speak about that with the hope of um, encouraging more women to be more aware of that, I think is a really, really commendable thing. So I think there are a lot of people that will be very, very grateful for her for sharing that and being so open. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Michael, for those who didn't see the game at the weekend, they did have to leave it late, Manchester City, as I mentioned, but it was a deserved win for them on on balance of play, I think. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. They had, I'd say, near constant pressure throughout the game. Maybe didn't create that many clear-cut chances, but I mean, Arsenal were just really lacking in anything going forward. Ended on 0.1 XG. I think that was from two shots. Uh, Mm. The goal they scored came after three minutes, and from then on, yeah, they didn't really offer anything. So, um, yeah. 94th minute goal, brilliant goal from Caroline Weir from outside the box, but I think it had been coming for for quite a a while until that point. And Katie, your piece on the game focused on the Arsenal side of things, their defeat rather than City's victory, uh, because it sort of fits into a a wider pattern uh, about Joe Montemuro's side and quite a concerning wider pattern as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at the stats when Arsenal play Manchester City and Chelsea, and I suppose with Manchester United now having been in the WSL for a couple of seasons and and really making a claim to be considered within that elite bracket. Um, when you add them into the equation, it's an even more worrying picture. Um, if you look at the results that the big three have against each other, Manchester City, um, Chelsea and Arsenal, Arsenal have comfortably the worst record um, against the other two, um, taking so few points and had so many defeats um, in those games. I think it works out at um, 140, 144 
league goals Arsenal scored since 18-19 season and just 13 have come against City and Chelsea and I was looking at Art's piece this morning from a few weeks ago and I think it was five out of five or five out of six defeats against Chelsea apart from the latest draw um, which obviously there was the Chelsea going in stoppage time so it's just a really worrying trend statistically but also in terms of the way that they're playing against these teams is a real marked departure from the Arsenal that we are used to seeing week in week out. Yeah Michael these results in the the big games uh, against the title rivals of course they're so pivotal in terms of who ends up winning the title so this is surely a huge issue for Arsenal and, and holding them back significantly. Yeah, there's a big divide in the WSL. I mean, last year there was a, a big three and, and other nine, if you like, and none of the big three lost to any of the other nine. The situation's changed for this season because Manchester United have made it into a big four, but now there's a, a four and an eight, and it's the same pattern. There, there just haven't been any losses uh, from the bigger sides against everyone else. So, yeah, there, there's almost a mini league between those three or four sides that kind of decides the title. Did quite literally last year with Chelsea and Manchester City because of the three-all draw and a missed penalty and it going to points per game. But yeah, it's you, you kind of expect United's Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City to, to beat the other sides and then they battle it out to uh, almost a yeah, mini-table to decide the league. So it's, if Arsenal are, are poor in those games, it's not like they can really compensate with the other games. They're just so important to deciding the title. Yeah, and I think it would be interesting if you were to look back at the end of the season and see which games were the most pivotal ones because... In previous seasons, you have had the odd game where the likes of City or Chelsea have dropped points outside or had too many draws. And then it's been the games outside of the big three head-to-heads that have really decided on the title race when teams like Bristol City or Reading have had an impact at some point or taken points that you wouldn't have expected them to. But it does feel this season, and in Arsenal's case in particular, with them being so poor against the other big teams that... It's that mini league, as, as Michael was saying, that's really going to decide the outcome of the title this year. Well, and the obvious question that you will be thinking about, Arsenal fans will be thinking about, and those within the club as well, is what is the issue here in these big games? Is it a, a psychological weakness? Uh, is it fitness fatigue towards the end of games? You know, conceding right at the death here against Man City or... Is it more of a tactical issue? Uh, Katie, run me through it. I'm sure you've had to think about this um, pretty in-depth, even this weekend. Um, yeah, I think there are probably a few strands that you can break it down to. I think from a fitness perspective, the issue that Arsenal have is that their squad is so light and it has been so light for a few seasons. And to add to that, maybe perhaps this year it's been amplified with the COVID situation and we have seen situations even in the men's game where games crammed into such a short space of time, a shortened calendar, less of a run-up to the season. You are having issues with tiredness and muscle injuries and things like that. But we have seen a pattern over several seasons at Arsenal women to the point where they're investigating this and doing an internal inquiry that they just seem to be so hit by different kinds of injuries um, at very pivotal points in the season. And that year in 1819, when they did win the title, was almost went off the rails for them because they did have so many injuries by January, couldn't field full benches. So I think that that lightness in that squad is a real concern um, for a lot of people and probably has been for a while. I think from a tactical perspective, it's very odd to watch because you watch Chelsea and Manchester City and they've got such deep squads and such versatile squads that they can have all different kind of game plans and really tinker in very obvious ways in those games when they come unstuck and they can make like-for-like switches, but also very different personnel switches. They have 
so many players in a forward line, Pernil Harder, Sam Kerr, Bethany Ingram, that all can offer and do very, very different things. They have players like G and Frank Kirby that are playing a little bit deeper, but can do very different things. So there's so much to go at in that squad. Whereas with this Arsenal team, you look at them sometimes and think, ah, what changes can they realistically make here? Or you certainly look at them. And I think with that Chelsea and Manchester City teams, they are very able to play their passing style and their inventive style and able to still retain, even though they're playing top, top teams, their style and their identity. Whereas I think this Arsenal team, for some reason, seem to come unstuck tactically where their style that demolishes all the other WSL teams just isn't there against City and Chelsea or isn't as fluid or isn't as cohesive. I'm not too sure what the solution is or the way to word it is, but it just seems tactically they still come up so short against teams that really, really press them and don't necessarily allow them the space. And especially when they're playing with such a narrow narrow, uh, midfield anyway, there isn't the option for them stretch the play out wide so I think it's just the case of how they may be setting up against these teams and whether the style that they have in the form that they play it is suitable to go up against teams like Manchester City Arsenal or Manchester City Chelsea or Manchester United where they really are pushing them with the presses that they play. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Michael, is that what stands out to you when you watch this Arsenal side in these big games, that they're just simply not doing enough to to match the opposition or win the tactical battle? Yeah, to me, it almost seems like Joe Montemurro just he always wants his side to play their A game, you know, and and when they have a game against one of the weaker sides in the league, they are absolutely brilliant. I mean, they've scored, I think, 11 more goals than anyone else in the table. They've got two top goal scorers in the league, the three top assisters in the league, but they almost like they, they only know how to play one way. They only have that default way of playing. And, Sometimes they just seem to lack certain types of players who can just dig in and, and basically put them in control and battle a little bit more in, in these kind of games. And I mean, one of the players who summarises it for me is is Leah Williamson, who is clearly an absolutely brilliant player and is fascinating to watch because she has the kind of technical profile of a, a really talented midfielder, I think. But, you know, she's been moved to, to playing centre-back under Montemuro and in the majority of games when Arsenal have 70-80% of possession, she's absolutely perfect for that because she's on the halfway line, she's dictating play, she's spraying passes out wide. But, I mean, some of the big games I've seen her in, she just, I don't think she looks suited to playing that role. Um, I was at Kings Meadow last year when, when Arsenal lost to Chelsea and against Bethany England, I, I just didn't think she looked particularly suited to that challenge. Um, the same can be said of um, the defeat to PSG in the Champions League. And while I didn't think she was particularly bad uh, in the weekend game, what Arsenal struggled with really, it wasn't being opened up in open play. It was just balls into the box from corners. I mean, that's where they conceded the goal uh, to Mewis, who had another good chance from a similar situation 
afterwards Steph Horton had a good chance at the back post from the corner it just feels like Arsenal are slightly lacking the whether you call it physicality whether it's a, a mental side of things but just doing the dirty work and, and doing the unfashionable things because yeah when they're at the best I think they're probably the best side in, in the league but you're not going to win the league in terms of whether you beat sides 7-0 or 10-0 you're going to win the league by whether you can scrape a draw or win in these big games and as Katie has said and, and said very well in her article they're just not doing that on quite a consistent basis. I mean, this, this is interesting as well in the context of what we spoke about on this podcast last week uh, about the Arsenal men's team and, and Mikel Arteta being somewhat scrutinised. Katie, I'm, I'm interested to know, d- does Montemuro come under the same sort of scrutiny and, and has he responded to questions about Arsenal's performances in these important games uh, against title rivals? Yeah, I asked the question on uh, Sunday about to what extent in particular the fact that these goals are coming against Chelsea, City, Manchester United right at the death of games, um, to what extent that becomes a worry and when that becomes a worry. And he was quite, um, I was quite surprised by his response that he said that it's a mentality thing and he can't get on the pitch and do the dirty work and clear, clear the ball from a corner or do this or mm. do that and the players have got to make decisions and things like that. And I think that that was an interesting response to him and to a certain extent justified because as Michael was saying that you look at the goals that they conceded, um, particularly from set pieces, and that first one, and the lack of defensive organisation, and I think the lack of a commanding voice at the back to sort of play in that um, first corner that led to the newest goal um, was probably quite startling. But I think it's very interesting from my perspective because I wouldn't have thought that Montemura was under any pressure at all because of the way that they play, how comprehensively they beat teams, the fact that they won the league so recently, they've been getting into cup finals consistently and things like that. But then to see the reaction on social media and the mm. criticism that he was coming up from Arsenal fans for not changing it quickly enough, for not recruiting enough players, for not doing certain things tactically, for their performance against top six, top three teams. And you do wonder how long um, they will be able to go without winning a trophy before questions are being asked. Because obviously they've underperformed in the cup competitions this year and come unstuck against the big bigger teams. So if that continues to be the case, is he going to be under pressure? I think it's very, very difficult to say. But I was surprised by how vociferous and how vocal the anti-Montemura feeling was on social media because I'd never seen that before the weekend. Mm. Obviously being being held to very high standards and Michael you could say the same about uh, Arsenal's top scorer in fact the top scorer in the WSL Vivian Miedemar who did score on the weekend against City early on and has 11 goals in nine league games this season but but a little bit like Arsenal as a whole and Montemuro, her record against the top sides gets questioned as well. Yeah, which I think is really harsh. And for me, that's just a symptom of Arsenal's problem rather than the actual cause. I mean, I know it's a very basic thing to say, but she is a centre forward. She does depend upon service from her teammates. Even at the weekend, you know, the goal she scored really was out of nothing. I mean, as I say, the XG on that shot was 0.05 or something ridiculous. It wasn't uh, like it had been laid on a plate for her. Um, and I just think, you know, when you look at these stats with the big games and that, that's just what the WSL is. It's it's so it's such a divide between playing against Bristol City, for example, and playing against one of the big sides. And it's just inevitable um, that her stats are going to be low against the big sides. I don't think the stats are, are so low that you can really read anything into that. And as well, just from the kind of player she is, the kind of character she is, she's just clearly very very focused she's very consistent in her game I don't think you can really accuse her of you know hiding in these big games it's just she's not been 
you know, getting the ball in good positions uh, against the big sides. Yeah, and I think it was quite telling that in that Chelsea game a few weeks ago, the Arsenal goal did actually come from her being moved out wide and making the run that she did to cross for the eventual finish. So I think that that probably maybe answers some of the questions about whether she's involved enough um, in those games against the big three. But I was just wondering if there's any sort of comparison in terms of, I don't know, the equivalents like Sam Kerr or Bethany England in terms of their impact against the big teams. Has anyone actually looked at whether they're scoring or as involved as consistently against the big teams? Because I can remember Bethany England and Sam Kerr having really, really good games against Arsenal. So I wonder if I'm not sure if Michael knows anything from a statistical perspective on this, but I wonder if when you're playing against forwards that are so involved against those bigger teams, whether it is maybe more glaring if you're having an off day as part of a wider team failure or system failure, and then that then comes back to criticise me, Damaris, and all she's not as involved in those big games. I wonder if it's just more marked contrast that's more visible in those bigger games. Yeah, it's interesting, and I wonder whether there's a stylistic thing as well, because I think... You know, when you look at the players, you know, in whatever league who tend to do well against big sides, it's usually partly because they're good on the break. They're good using their speed in behind because they've got that speed to use. I don't necessarily think of Miedemar as a player who depends on that compared to, for example, England, who I think in those big games is is getting space and is able to run in there. So, yeah, you're right. It's uh, it's always worth comparing to other players rather than just the raw numbers. Katie, I'd like to ask you, uh, before we move on to more general questions, about Manchester City because of course they won this game uh, and they probably deserve uh, a, a little bit of discussion. I enjoyed uh, on the Guardian uh, sort of live blog of, of this game that when the teams were announced the C- City's formation was described as a non-negotiable 4-3-3 uh, and I, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know how City play, um, who their stars have been this season and yeah I mean Weir's winning goal was magnificent but watching the game back I mean they barely allowed Arsenal a sniff apart from one mistake early on which was capitalised on by Miedemar. Yeah I mean I think that you've really really grown into the season I think at the start of the season some of their earlier performances particularly against Aston Villa but also against um, Chelsea in the uh, Charity Shield you were looking at them and you were very uncertain about what they wanted to be and it felt that there was a team of very clear talent and very clear superstars in the game but all maybe firing on slightly different levels and I think it was concerning for us because we were thinking oh gosh new managers come through in Gareth Taylor after so many years with Nick Cushing and how long is it going to take them to find their feet and how bad is this going to get but I think that in the recent weeks in particular um, Taylor has really silenced any kind of criticism or doubters and the City team have really blossomed into probably the side that they always hinted at being and that we always suspected that they would be I think Everyone in pre-season knew that Chelsea were going to be um, really, really strong this season and the signings that they brought in in the window and have brought in in the last few years, everyone was suspecting that they were going to be the team to beat and that City were sort of going to be the team most likely to catch them. And I think that now with City, you are really starting to see them come into their own and be the team they always suggested they would be. So I think the stars in that team, Sam Mewis has really, really impressed me. I think her vision on the ball and the passes that she picks out and the way that she sets them up and transitions from defence to attack is a real high point of that team and you look at her and just think oh god I don't know how she spotted that pass and I think that she's an excellent player for them I think Caroline Weir is having an excellent season some of her deliveries from um, crosses and the absolute kind of danger in her left foot there's so much about her that I think this is probably on track for maybe one of her best personal seasons and it's just a shame that 
we won't be seeing her at the Euros. So there are quite a few superstars in that team, even before you get to the goal scorers in Janine Becky or um, Ellen White or Georgia Stanway or anything like that. There's a lot to admire in their kind of midfield and their build-up and things like that. And that non-negotiable 4-3-3 is, is about right. I think we've not really seen them deviate from that, but I think that they're a very talented team now and they're very clear in what they want to do and that 4-3-3 seems to be working for them with mm. having certain players in Kira Walsh in that deeper role for instance or that front three in Chloe Kelly in the way that she's allowed to be involved now so I think that there's a lot to admire in that team it does feel at last like they found their real identity and they're really clicking. You do wonder if, if it might have just taken a little too long this season they're five points behind the the leaders Manchester United at the moment and that was their first win uh, against in in that sort of mini league if you will so far this season having lost to Chelsea um, and drawn with United and and draws against Reading and Brighton earlier on in the season um, from what you've said maybe they hadn't quite clicked yet and that might hold them back in terms of a of a title this season more generally we've mentioned a lot you know this mini league the difference between the the you know quote unquote bigger WSL sides and and the rest of the WSL and in fact Katie your first article for the athletic which is always a big moment for any <laughs> uh, new athletic signing you you've got you've got to go big with that first Let one know you there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly uh, and you definitely did that back in October and you focused on on this very question it's sort of a it, i guess it's an existential question in a way for for the WSL and the women's game um, how much of a problem do you or did you conclude that this is for the league overall, uh, the, the gap, the lack of competitive balance, I suppose, between the top three or four teams and the rest? Yeah, I think there are several um, strands to it. I think from a credibility perspective and particularly for a growing league um, and particularly with getting fans into grounds and fans outside of the hubs of the two Manchester clubs and the London clubs is how much of a credibility damage is it to have teams that are losing 7-0, 8-0, 10-0, those massive heavy score lines, And are you going to commit to going to watch that team every week? Or are you going to be attracted by the Perneal Hardens and the Sam Kerrs at the price that you as a, a supporter of a team outside of that bracket is going to have to pay to watch them is to lose by such ridiculously heavy margins mm. every week. I think that's one angle of it. I think the other side of it is just the overall health of the league that, yes, we do want Manchester City, Chelsea, Man United, Everton... Uh, I suppose Reading have got those ambitions as well, Arsenal, to be able to compete in the Champions League. But we also need, I say we also need it. It's a question of whether trickle-down economics actually works, isn't it? It's of whether asking those top new teams to pull up the bottom teams is the way to do it. If moving to professionalism, you can't argue that that wasn't the right move to make at the right time, even though a lot of people were quite cynical when it was first suggested. But in terms of the quality of the league, it's really pushed that up. But a few teams have had to run before they can walk and I think it's really increased that reliance on investment from men's Premier League sides in particular. Um, so then are you looking at a divide between the ones that have got investment from the Premier League and the ones that are tied to Championship or below clubs? It's just a few questions about... The word existential is a really good one to use because it's a questions about how sustainable is this league and does it need to be sustainable and what kind of blueprint do we want to use and what image almost do we want to build it in and do we want that financial reliance on men's clubs do we want the independence is this just a part of the teething problem before the tv rights deals come in and maybe the distribution of money evens out a little bit more i don't know it's just a big lot of big questions about where the league wants to go and how it wants to look i think that 
have really been reflected in some of these score lines. And just before we let you go, uh, I want to ask both of you your thoughts on the title race. So in, in the top four, you've got Manchester United top of the league on 23 points from their nine games. Chelsea three back, but with a game in hand. And then Arsenal on 19 and City 18. Katie, is this truly a, a four horse race this time around? Um, it's very difficult to say. I think the second half of the season is when you're really, really going to see if the top two start to pull away or not. Um, I think Manchester United deserves so, so much credit because... They do have several sort of superstars in that team with Torben Heath, Kristen Press, Jackie Gronin, Lauren James as a young up-and-coming superstar, albeit one that hasn't played much this season. But the bulk of that squad are players that have been there for a number of years now under Casey Stoney, many of whom were there when they won promotion from the Championship. So it's a real testament to her coaching, I think, and her management style to be able to develop those players into a team that are really formidable and able to sit at the top of the Super League and... I think have probably taken many of us by surprise and even she admitted that they didn't expect them to be competing at this stage this quickly. So I think if they can stay up there, that'll be a huge, huge achievement for them and really, really commendable. I think Chelsea instinctively feel the most likely to catch them, not only because of the points position, but how they their squad and how they've performed this season most consistently. Arsenal, I just worry that, as we've said, their record against the top three, top four teams is going to do for them. I just feel instinctively that they're not going to be able to close that gap purely because of that record no matter how many 10-0, 7-0, 6-1 victories they end up piling up. Uh, with City I think if they maintain the form they've got a decent-ish chance of closing that gap in particular if they can take points off Chelsea and Manchester United in those head-to-heads but it's just that worry of whether it's maybe come a little bit too late for them now because we have seen in previous seasons that teams have been ruled out of the title race by September, October, November time just because of so few teams in a 12-team league, 11-team league as it was then that you really can't afford too many draws or to drop too many points early on. So I do worry with City and the start of the season that they've had and the draws that they've had against teams that they probably should have beaten, maybe they will catch up with them. So I feel like it's probably too late for City, although they might rally at the end. But for me, I just feel that one of Chelsea or Manchester United will probably take the title this year. Does that tally with with your thoughts at this uh, fairly early stage, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't expect Manchester United to be up there. And uh, I mean, Casey Stoney's done an incredible job, as Katie says. I agree. I I think Chelsea probably will have too much. I just think the strength and depth they've got, the number of attacking options, means that they probably will edge themselves ahead and retain their crown that they won in slightly unusual circumstances. Um, But I've been really impressed with Stoney and, and particularly her tactics in big games. I thought the the uh, halftime changes she made in the derby were really effective. And I think midway through January, they go to Kings Meadow. And obviously that's a huge game. If United can win that, then it really is game on. Um, if not, if Chelsea get the win, I'd fancy them to take it all the way. But yeah, that would be a huge win for Manchester United if they can manage it, not just in terms of the uh, the title race, but in terms of psychologically as well. Because as Katie says, I don't think the expectation was there that they can challenge. But if they can defeat the uh, the reigning champions, there's no reason they can't shock everyone else and win the league. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant to hear from from Katie and from Michael as well about the WSL. Thank you so much, you guys, for joining me on the podcast today. But thank you also, those of you who have listened to this week's pod. Katie's writing is as brilliant as her podcasting. You can have my word for that. uh, And you all know about what Michael brings to the table too. So an athletic subscription is all you need to read every single word they write. And you can get a special Christmas offer if you head to theathletic.com forward slash zone 
tonal marking. Buy one, gift one. Get one for yourself and give one to a loved one. Um, give the gift of The Athletic this Christmas. We expect to have Tom Warville back next week, so we hope you'll join us then. Thanks so much for listening. This has been the Zonal Marking Podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. Thank you.